November 15th. Israeli forces storm Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest medical complex in the Gaza Strip, in search of a Hamas base. The facility sheltered hundreds of people, wounded civilians, children and newborns, all now at the center of a bloody war. Soon after, the World Health Organization called the hospital a death zone. Healthcare facilities benefit from special protections under international law. But from Gaza to Ukraine, and in many other places, evidence abounds that hospitals are often just another military target. On December 8th, in a dramatic move, UN Chief Antonio Guterres made a desperate and ultimately unsuccessful plea to the Security Council, asking again for a ceasefire in Gaza. Gaza health system is collapsing while needs are escalating. International humanitarian law includes the duty to protect civilians and to comply with the principles of distinction, proportionality and precaution. Today, I speak to Larissa Fast, a PRIO Global Fellow, Professor of Humanitarian and Conflict Studies at the University of Manchester, where she is also the principal investigator on the project researching the impact of attacks on healthcare. We're joined in Oslo by Tobias Kuller, a specialist in international humanitarian law with the Norwegian Red Cross. I am Arno Siad, and you're listening to Prio's Peace in a Pod. Larissa, Tobias, welcome both. As I mentioned in the introduction, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, just wrote a letter to the Security Council. He said, the healthcare system in Gaza is collapsing. Hospitals have turned into battlegrounds. Larissa, what have we seen at Al-Shifa, the largest hospital in Gaza? Yeah, so Al-Shifa Hospital is located in Gaza City, so in the north of Gaza. On the 11th of November, it was encircled by the Israeli military and then raided on the 15th of November. And the claims by the Israeli Defense Forces were that Hamas had a command structure and a weapons cache inside the hospital and tunnels below. There is a, an AK-47, there are cartridges, am ammo, uh, there are uh, grenades in here, of course, uniforms. And all of that, this was hidden very conveniently, secretly, behind the MRI machine. Prior to those dates, there had also been multiple airstrikes, both in and around the hospital compound, that had damaged the hospital, destroyed the solar panels, uh, providing electricity, and also killed and injured civilians, patients, medical personnel, either sheltering at or working at the hospital. So I guess depending on where you sort of your stance, the hospital itself could, um, you know, it's for Israel, um, Al-Shifa is, um, you know, it's a command center for Hamas, the group that either uh, that killed and um, took hostage civilians uh, and uh, military personnel, about 1400 people in Israel on October 7. For and as such, then there, you know, it's a prime example of how Hamas 
hides behind uh, civilians. And for Palestinians, on the other side, the attack on the hospital is another indication of the suffering that the Israeli military has inflicted upon Gazans and also a clear violation of the rules of war. Just to note that there have been at least 14 reported attacks on healthcare in Israel and 394 in the occupied Palestinian territories. So that's both Gaza and the West Bank between October 7 and the end of November. And that includes over 100 health workers who have been killed. Right. As you just said, uh, Al-Shifa hospital means two different things, whether you are the Israeli government or a Palestinian in Gaza. So for Israel, as you said, the hospital is an illustration of how Hamas hides behind innocent civilians. And for Palestinians, targeting a hospital is emblematic of how cheaply Israel values their suffering. So Tobias, what does international law say about this? Can a hospital be a legitimate target of war? And by the same token, can a party to an armed conflict use a hospital as a hideout or a military base? So indeed, uh, the protection of hospitals and uh, all medical services is paramount in armed conflict. And the rules of armed conflict or international humanitarian law lay out very specific and large protections in this regard. Uh, so we have the medical buildings, the hospitals, uh, the facilities that provide care that have what we call special protection. So they're not just considered civilian in the sense that you know, you're not supposed to attack them, but they have special protection, which is an additional layer in recognition of their importance in an armed conflict situation, because there are so many sick, there are so many wounded, and all of them have traumatic injuries that need urgent treatment, because otherwise uh, you will have quite a high, uh, much higher death rates. So, so they're, they're very important. And then we have very specific rules on, indeed, on, uh, on the loss of protection, that I can come in uh, a little after. But there's very specific rules that the parties need to follow. And the paramount idea is that healthcare is supposed to be safe. Hospitals are supposed to be safe places. And you're not supposed to use hospitals for any sort of military purpose. Right. But in this case, I believe Israel has been asked to provide evidence to their claim that Al-Shifa was used by Hamas as a major military facility. So Larissa... What mechanisms is there to conduct independent investigations in cases like this? So, yeah, that's a really good question. There is something called the International Humanitarian Fact-Finding Commission. It was created in 1991 under the Geneva Conventions, and they have done investigations before, but they are typically not um, publicly shared. So the IHFFC has not been used consistently, but it does exist as a mechanism to actually investigate these kinds of things. More often than not, however, it's things like internal investigations uh, that are part of how we note or how we discover what has happened. And so here I'll give an example of the U.S. military strikes on um, a hospital in Kunduz in October of 2015. It's a very well-known example that of airstrikes, uh, military strikes by the U.S. Um, that destroyed the trauma hospital of the group Médecins Sans Frontières. The attack came in the middle of the night on October 3rd and reduced the hospital to ruins. 
About 180 staff and patients were inside the hospital when a U.S. gunship launched an overhead assault that lasted for more than an hour. So MSF actually called for an independent investigation by the IHFFC. But in actual fact, what really happened was the U.S. military conducted its own internal investigation, as did MSF. And in this case, um, similar to Al-Shifa, the U.S. military claimed that it had received reports that the hospital was sheltering Taliban fighters. We let them inspect the building to look at the damage that uh, actually they were responsible for. Um, but however, we completely reject the fact that they, they didn't inform us in advance and they just knocked the gate down and came in. And that was part of what came out in the internal investigation. Right. And that example you provided, Larissa, was in Kunduz in northeastern Afghanistan. And it leads me to my next question, which is that the targeting of health facilities in a conflict zone isn't just happening in Gaza. According to human rights and humanitarian organizations, over a thousand attacks on healthcare workers and facilities have happened in Ukraine since the war began. We've heard similar stories from Yemen. So, Larissa, just how common is it that a hospital become a war target. Put it in context for us. Yeah, unfortunately, it's all too common. Uh, and this is part of what I and a number of my colleagues have been researching over the last five years, um, both about the instances of attacks, but also their impact on uh, the population uh, and also on the health workers themselves. Um, so I'll return to that in just a minute. Um, in 2021, we had the five-year anniversary of UN Security Council Resolution 2286 that came about after um, a lot of attacks, particularly on hospitals, but also on other facilities and healthcare more generally in Syria. And part of what we released a, um, a five-year report sort of documenting attacks that was uh, together with the Safeguarding Health and Conflict Coalition. And that report pointed out that attacks had been increasing in number over time. So this UN Security Council resolution actually didn't have what many hoped would be a desired effect of decreasing the number of attacks in 2022. We had 1,989 uh, reported incidents uh, around um, or in conflict zones, including 704 health facilities that were either damaged or destroyed. I guess the point I would like to make, however, is that hospitals being attacked are what makes the news. There's also many attacks on other facilities like primary care facilities or mobile clinics, uh, attacks on transport, so ambulances or even things like taxis that are being used to transport the wounded, also attacks on health workers and patients. So the bombing of hospitals in Gaza, for example, is a feature of the violence in this war between Israel and Hamas. But in the West Bank, you have instances of uh, health workers being either arrested or detained. In places like Ukraine and Syria, again, you have bombings of hospitals, but elsewhere, the characteristics and the patterns of violent attacks are different. 
There are in Ukraine, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Nigeria, Cameroon, you have arrest and detention of health workers. In Myanmar, from January and until October, you had 29 health workers who were killed and um, health facilities were damaged at least 123 times. In Afghanistan and in other places, you have the forced closure of health facilities that has been happening. During the Ebola crisis in um, DRC and uh, in Manipur in India, the attacks are taking the form of arson. So these attacks are often linked to the mechanisms and logics of war and the warring parties. And the impact of these then, particularly on healthcare workers, where you have psychological or mental health um, impact, economic and social impacts on the individuals themselves that are really significant, also their families, their colleagues, and even on things like forcing medical personnel to practice beyond their areas of expertise. So if you have the only surgeon you know, in a situation of armed conflict who is killed, then other medical personnel may be forced to practice surgery because there simply is no one left to do that kind of, to provide that medical care. Indeed. I think one of the important things to remember here as well, and you, you made these excellent points about uh, attacks and uh, that it's not just attacks on on the physical structures, but also on the medical staff, and that goes even very to, to quite a low threshold of harassment and uh, and challenging the medical ethics under which uh, medical staff is supposed to carry out the duties. And when they're getting pressed to either prioritize different patients, prioritize different types of cases, maybe areas of work, uh, or not come to work, or uh, so, so they face all kinds of pressures. Uh, and harassment also, uh, which probably also on the way to work, for example. And all these types of interferences are making the delivery of healthcare in armed conflict so challenging and so difficult. And it's something that also for the Red Cross Red Crescent movement we've been working on in what we call the healthcare in danger campaign over many years to sort of, and that stretches from conflict zones, but also to places in Oslo. When you were sitting in Oslo now, how when you are in a stressful situation and, 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 and there was a difficult incident and healthcare workers are engaged in the, uh, as an ambulance worker and, and they're going to be threatened. They're going to be, there's people under pressure that are traumatized in the situation uh, because something violent has happened um, and they have to deal with this and have to actually find a safe environment for them to work. And this is, this is a huge problem in conflict zones uh, as we can see that it's also a problem in peaceful areas uh, already. Absolutely. Um, attacks on healthcare take many different forms and go way beyond the headlines uh, Larissa mentioned. From the perspective of international humanitarian law, Tobias, what are the key principles and protections in place for civilians and health facilities during armed conflicts? Indeed, civilians and healthcare facilities are protected against attack. Uh, that is the very fundamental idea of distinction, That um, uh, the principle of distinction. That means you're only supposed to direct attacks against military objectives and never ever against civilian objects. And uh, hospitals are, are civilian in that sense. As I said earlier, there is uh, what we call special protection for medical facilities in armed conflict. That means they're supposed to be respected and protected. 
respected means you're supposed to refrain from interfering with them, refrain from attacking them. Uh, and protected means you have to do something active. You're supposed to actually make their functioning possible and take positive steps so that they can function properly. So you have these, these double obligations uh, in respect to medical facilities. Now, it is indeed possible, like for any other civilian object, if you use it for military purpose, it can become a lawful target for attack. Uh, that is also true for hospitals. If they are used, what's called outside of their humanitarian function for acts harmful to the enemy. That's the formulation. Outside the humanitarian function means to sort of ensure that it's not, let's think about an ambulance that is evacuating wounded people and is breaking down in the middle of an intersection where also other m fighters have to come through and then they're impeding military operations, but they're not doing that for any sort of, you know, that's purpose. part of their purpose. Mm. Um, so uh, you couldn't attack them there. And even treating enemy combatants, which is at the core idea of international humanitarian law, that everybody who's wounded and sick uh, can't be attacked and shall receive the care necessary, that gives, in a sense, a military advantage to the enemy because you're getting healthy fighters probably afterwards again. But that is considered not an act harmful to the enemy per se. Now, if they're used outside of the humanitarian function for acts harmful to the enemy. And that could be, for example, to shelter able-bodied fighters. Uh, it could mean uh, providing a communication center for uh, fighting forces. It could be storing ammunition or weapons, etc. cetera. Um, there, there's no exhaustive list of what it is. Well, if that is the case, they can lose protection against attack. And then we have these special rules that are kicking, the sort of procedural. If party to the conflict sees this as happening, it needs to warn of an impeding attack. So the warning is not something that is obligatory if you attack another different a normal civilian object. Uh, if you want, it's something that you can do if circumstances permit. But in the case of uh, hospitals, that's a required uh, step you have to take. And you need to wait that the warning can be heeded, that it either can, uh, the party can stop using it for military purposes or an act harmful to the enemy, or that uh, if they persist and they continue, that at least the wounded and sick and the medical staff, etc., can be evacuated if possible. And only then can you consider attacking. But it's not a free license, because then you need to think, okay, often hospitals aren't just one room. Right. Big structures, mm -hmm. many floors, several wings. It's only that particular area that is used for military purposes that loses its protection against attack. Everything else has still protection against attack. Right, and what you're saying is that it's rather narrow, the scope for a hospital or a healthcare facility as a whole to lose its protection under international law, right? It has to be quite specific. It has to be quite specific. It's a high threshold uh, for good reason because of the importance of healthcare and armed conflict, as we talked about, and why this is why states have given it such high protections. Uh, so if you are in a such, a, such a situation, you may then maybe direct an attack, but you still have the general rules on the, on that, that apply for every attack. So that's precautions, uh, for example, and proportionality. Proportionality means you can't have casualty or damage or death and destruction on the civilian side that outweighs what you get out of the attack, uh, militarily speaking. And on the other hand, you have to always minimize civilian damage as much as you can in any case. So if you're conducting an attack and you're doing it maybe with ground forces and you're there, every medical staff you see, the medical equipment you see, 
the elevator you use, the patients that are there, they're all protected against attack. You need to consider them in, in the proportionality that you're conducting. And of course, um, you have to minimize as much as you can, meaning consider other ways of getting the same military advantage other than attacking. If you allow me, one thing that is of course connected to this is the usage. Is that allowed as such? Um, so can a party use a hospital for acts harmful to the Emmanuel? And the answer to that is no. You're not supposed to locate your forces or your military objectives close to civilian objects, first of all. You're not supposed to hide specifically. You're not supposed to hide, uh, try to shield your military objectives by placing them close or in hospitals, etc. And like I said earlier, you're supposed to respect and protect medical functions. So if you're placing military objects in a hospital, you're doing the opposite of that. So you're violating several rules here uh, if you're actually uh, using these, these hospitals for acts harmful to the, to the enemy. And I think many of us have been quite um, disturbed by a lot of the images that came from Gaza and the hospitals. We mentioned Al-Shifa earlier on. And there's been many credible accounts, including from the UN, that civilians have been and patients in hospitals have ended up being the targets ultimately in Gaza. Larissa, why is international humanitarian law seemingly not enough to prevent such horrific scenarios? Yeah, good question. Um, I think there there are many reasons for that. And here I'm also drawing on the work of others, primarily um, one of my colleagues, Len Rubenstein, and his um, book on attacks on healthcare. And uh, there's sort of a number of different possibilities. One is that health workers and healthcare facilities provide care to the enemy. Even if they are wounded and sick, they are still the enemy and um, therefore seen as, um, you know, an object of attack. Um, another is that it might be part of a strategic logic to attack or to deny uh, access to healthcare in conflict or conversely to protect. And here, um, one of our case studies on the RIA project is of Nepal. And it was uh, a case where the strategy of war did not necessarily include attacks on health. And so you actually had health indicators that improved rather than uh, got worse, as is the case in many uh, conflict zones. Another might be um, gaining advantage. So you um, steal medical supplies uh, in order to treat fighters or you force healthcare workers to prioritize the treatment of combatants over and against uh, civilians. And that provides uh, an advantage to uh, the fighting forces. Um, there might be a lack of precaution. So it's, um, you know, you don't protect healthcare because it's simply too difficult. Not an excuse, of course, but it provides a reason for that, uh, for attacks on health and violence on healthcare. Two other things I'll mention, um, attacks on health may be a way of undermining healthcare or um, as an expression of hostility toward a government that provides that care. But I think ultimately it's also a question about accountability. Uh, there is a sense that there's no penalty for attacks on health. And I think to the extent that that is the case, then it also 
legitimizes other and further attacks on health. So ensuring that accountability is one way to also try and make it stop. The president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Mariana Spoliaric, was in Gaza this week. I have just visited the European Gaza Hospital and the things I saw there is, is beyond anything that anyone should be in a position to describe. We've seen that the ICRC has been involved as a neutral party in the release of hostages. Tobias, you work for the Norwegian Red Cross. You mentioned Healthcare in Danger campaign earlier. So what is your organization doing there in Gaza and elsewhere to prevent or mitigate those attacks on healthcare facilities? Indeed, so the Norwegian Red Cross itself is not active right now in Gaza. It's the Palestine Red Crescent, uh, mostly, and the International Committee of the Red Cross, as you said uh, earlier. There are several things uh, that you do. The very specific thing the ICRC does in such circumstances is have bilateral, confidential discussions with the parties to the conflict about sticking to the law. And these are tough and difficult discussions that you seek, where you document as far as you can on your own account, not relying on other sources, but uh, by what you see, but what you can collect by being close to the ground and the facts as they happen, and then present them to uh, what who you think is the perpetrator uh, of a potential violation and discuss them. And we talked about it earlier, like in order to instigate, for example, investigations into this with the aim of this not happening again, at least in the future. So these interventions that can also take the form of diplomatic notes that are sent are definitely one vehicle to do this. There's other ways all the way on the other axis where you have, you could talk about prevention. Um, you could talk about teaching the humanitarian value of the other human, even though they're the enemy who's uh, who's wounded, uh, and sort of ingraining that in every uh, person by just teaching the basics of international humanitarian law to the general population, by making sure your armed forces are properly trained up on these rules, that their maps uh, have these places marked, that they understand the rules of engagement around these places, that they avoid placing themselves, that they avoid traveling close to such uh, areas. All these things can happen uh, and should happen in peacetime, that these things don't happen in wartime. And... One thing is to prevent, as you just mentioned, another thing is to act when we witness hospitals or healthcare facilities becoming military targets. Larissa, you touched upon it earlier, but what tools does the international community have in addressing this when we see this unraveling in front of our eyes? Yeah, I, I wish we had more tools than we do. Um, you know, awareness raising, obviously, um, advocacy is important. But I think another element is to understand the patterns of violence in order to better prevent and mitigate their effects to the extent that that is possible. So we need to understand the underlying logics and patterns of attack. So For example, when and where, under what conditions do attacks take place? Because the mitigation measures for bombing of a hospital are going to be very different uh, than for the arrest of health workers. You know, you might be able to strengthen defenses uh, with sandbags or um, other, you know, a clear delineation of the nature of the facility with, you know, um, the Red Cross on a roof, for example. Those things are ways that um, 
you know, it assists with mitigate, or it's possible to mitigate um, some of the impact, even if it doesn't prevent an attack. Yeah, um, if I can add to that, um, and I think those were excellent points. I think one of the things you need to we need to remember are. Uh, they need to be very context-specific. So each situation calls for a different response. Yeah. Yeah. And that was part of my um, what I was trying to get at with the, you know, understanding the patterns of the violence, because it will, right. uh, the measures that you put in place will obviously differ according to context and the nature of the attacks. Absolutely. As you mentioned, it's quite context-specific, but I wonder, as we wrap this episode what recommendations you have for policymakers, humanitarian organizations, and international community at large to better address and prevent disasters, such as the one we've seen in Gaza and the other cases mentioned in this episode. So to you first, Tobias. I think maybe the first on the advocacy level is to not get tired of talking about the importance of healthcare and its protection. Uh, it may sound hollow, but recognizing and underscoring it's important is an important uh, message. And it also, that we're having a whole podcast episode about this, that people are sincerely shocked by these types of attacks, underlines that there's general acceptance and for this rule and for the protections given. So I think that is important and that's important to maintain. Yeah, when it comes to other specific recommendations, we, we have, like Larissa said, we have to look at the specific context. Is marking uh, with, for example, a protective emblem of the Geneva Conventions, the crescent or the cross or what, what, uh, the, the crystal, um, is that the right way to go? Yes or no? That depends on the context. It may, it may expose you more, um, as we've also seen, unfortunately, in some context, or it may, it may expose you less. We have notification to armed forces of the GPS locations of places, it may increase protection, it may not. Passive protections, also mentioned, sandbags, etc., could be a good way to go. But I think key is instilling in fighting forces um, and in the rules they, they, they use to, to operate, very clear and strict rules about do not go there, do not enter, do stay away, and make sure that these facilities can function as best as they can in, in this critical time. Larissa, last words to you. So I think um, networks of um, awareness and advocacy are super important. Um, I think also data collection. Sometimes it does feel like we're just tracking tragic instances of attacks on health, but it can be useful in that awareness raising and uh, making sure that people understand the scale of the problem, not just of attacks on hospitals in Gaza, but the fact that this is also happening elsewhere around the world, unfortunately. I guess the other thing that I would also really like to emphasize is the support mechanisms that could be put in place. I think there's a real difference, a qualitative difference between the type of support that international actors have as compared to the resources that local and national healthcare infrastructure and healthcare workers have after attacks um, in order to mitigate the effects of attacks, even to prevent them. They are much less resourced and much less able then to mitigate the impact of attacks. So I would just uh, like to end with a, a plea that we also support local and national healthcare infrastructure 
in conflict zones. Right. Larissa, Tobias, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. This episode was produced by your host, Arno Siad, and edited by Brage Pedersen, with sound from the Daily Mail, The Guardian, the United Nations, the International Committee for the Red Cross, and Al Jazeera.